was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode... Number 11. That, by the way, will be the last time Blofeld does the numbers. There are no more Spectre numbers after uh, 11, uh, unless I go to Never Say Never Again, which I won't be doing. Uh, anyway, this is the, uh, the podcast in which we succinctly summarize the scintillating missions and sensational sojourns of the sophisticated, stylish spy, James Bond 007. Make yourself at home in the cubbyhole. It's great to have you here. Returning listeners will know this already, uh, but for the sake of our new time listeners, do indulge me in the customary plug of social media. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, do let us know by liking and following us. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook under our full show title, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, or on Twitter under the shorter handle of More Cubby, more spelt in the Roger way. We also have a Q branch, aka questions branch segment at the end of each episode where we answer your questions about Bond. So do get those to us as well through our social media or via email rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. And in true Roger Moore style, answering range is wide. We can do serious or lighthearted. So whatever question you want to get to us, we will try to answer in Q branch. Now, in our previous episode, we examined Alan Partridge's favorite film and also one of our favorite Bond films, Bond number 10, The Spy Who Loved Me, a film that got the perfect balance, comedy, action, suspense. So how do you follow on from the best film ever made? Well, the answer is you kind of repeat the same film, a uh, similar plot, but was it similar in its execution? So let's find out as we have liftoff on Bond number 11, Moonraker. So sending the radio waves out into the ether alongside me, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who has a large vocabulary, has a butler called Cavendish, but thankfully holds moderate views on creating a superior human race. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you very much, and thank you for bringing up my moderate views on creating a, a race of superhumans. I should point out I'm only in favour of it if they're sort of more like X-Men and don't come with like special superpowers. I think there's no point otherwise. So before we begin the podcast, I uh, just want to pay a very quick tribute to the actor Earl Cameron, who died aged 102 uh, on the Friday before we record this on the Sunday. We talked a little bit about Earl when we were discussing Thunderball, in which he plays Pinder, the Bahamas contact for MI6. A very well-respected and beloved and incredibly important and influential actor in British cinema in the 1950s. In films such as Pool of London, he was one of the first prominent black actors to take leading roles in British cinema at the time. Obviously, we want to mark his passing as an actor who has uh, appeared in a Bond film and uh, just pay our respects to one of the most important and I think still unsung and, and under-known figures in British cinema of that era. So, um, so long, Earl. Thank you very much, Adam. And secondly, it's the man whose munificence is boundless, especially when he's sharing cucumber sandwiches with some lovely lady friends. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? 
Yes, thank you, Martin. I'm very well, very well looking forward to uh, delving into the very much exciting world of Moonraker this week. Again, as we've already mentioned, just a really quick thanks to everybody that's been getting involved on our social media channels. So thank you to Chris Hicks for getting in touch on Facebook. Thank you to James Sexton and John Berry on Twitter. And thank you, just a really quick mention to everybody that's followed us on Twitter as well. We're now past the 200 follower mark. So thank you everyone that's been getting involved and getting in touch with us. Worth mentioning as well, of course, that once we pass a thousand followers on any platform, we will be releasing Phil on the Aston Martin DB5 in full. It's worth it. So get your friends, get your family, get everyone following so that we can unleash the beast. I think people might want to be signing up to Hugo Drax's plan if uh, we're released there. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I was thinking, we do we need a, a collective name for our listenership as well? Now that it's getting bigger, what should we call them? I was about to say the bondage, but that doesn't really sound very good. You want to call all of our listeners the bondage? What, what do you want to do with these listeners? I was thinking the, something the, along the line of the cubbies, something cute. The cubbies <laughs> could be good. The cubbies is quite good. Cubbies sounds like it could come between like the beavers and the scouts. What was the one? What was the one after the beavers? Don't you start as an otter? Is it not otters and then beavers? Is that not right? And then you go up to the scout. I don't know about it, an no, otter. It's no, it's cubs. It's cubs. cubs. You go, That's why it reminded you... me of it when you said cubbies. So yeah, cubbies, I think, is quite good. So yeah. If you're, if, if you're, if you're listening for the first time, you're a beaver. If, you, if you've sort of listened to loads of them, you're a cubby. And maybe us three are the scout leaders. Can I just say this analogy is really, really creepy? Do you just not like it when I say beavers? At least it's not the pussies. Right idea, Mr. Bond. But wrong pussy. Okay, we'll move on now to our first segment, the summary, the synopsis of the film. So over to Adam and Alan. Thank you very much, Martin. So, Moonraker, the 11th James Bond film based on the third James Bond book. Lewis Gilbert returns to direct after The Spy Who Loved Me, so this is his second Bond film in a row. It's his third and final Bond in the director's chair. And Christopher Wood, who wrote the script for The Spy Who Loved Me, also wrote the script for this one. Roger Moore, of course, is back as James Bond 007, outing number four, and it is the final performance from Bernard Lee as M. Uh, this is his 11th and last film in the role. Uh, so Moonraker's released in June 1979, so still nine years ahead of Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Moonraker's made on a budget of $34 million, so it is a hugely more expensive film uh, than The Spy Who Loved Me. I think it's double the budget of it. But it goes on to make $210 million, which, unadjusted for inflation, remains a series record until GoldenEye's released in 1995. So, to find out what happens in this big, bold Bond blockbuster, here's Alan Partridge. Sauntering down the gun barrel, it's Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. A smug RAF pilot goes up in flames when a Moonraker shuttle's nicked from his plane, while Bond and Jaws go skydiving, knocking over a big top faster than Dumbo's mum. Cuba Bassey, the Moonraker. Bond visits Hugo Drax, a man so rich he's had half of France rebuilt in California, and declines a cucumber sandwich. Look after Mr. Bond. See that some harm comes to him. After engaging Dr. Holly Goodhead in some casual sexism, he's nearly killed while having anti-wrinkle treatment in a centrifuge. 
He treats a French chopper pilot to his magic penis, but she's fed to the dogs after she helps bond Robert Clock and ruin grouse season. Over in Venice, after outrunning the Mafia and scaring a pigeon in a gondola hovercraft, Bond smashes up a glass museum, killing two Poindexters making nerve gas and Kato's cousin before treating Dr. Goodhead to his own magic Goodhead. Then we go to Rio de Janeiro for some reason, where a by now surely heavily jet-lagged Bond has even more sexy time, before he and Dr. Goodhead hook up with an old friend on a cable car. His name's Jaws, he kills people. Goodhead gets captured, and Jaws falls in love with a short, pigtailed weirdo. Bond sends Jaws over an Amazon waterfall, fights a rubber snake in front of Pan's people, I discovered she had a crush on me, and gets captured by Drax. You defy all my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. It turns out Drax is literally going to wipe out humanity using nerve gas in space before restarting a master race with the cast of Logan's Run. But Bond and Goodhead steal a shuttle, blast off into actual space, and board Drax's actual space station he put in orbit without anyone noticing. Drax catches them again. You appear with the tedious inevitability of an unloved season. But Jaws, having now lost his V-card, turns Goody and helps Bond escape. Space Marines attack, everything blows up, Bond shoves Drax off to Mars through an airlock. Take a giant leap for mankind. And he and Holly destroy the nerve gas probes with a Millennium Falcon space laser before they're caught having zero-G sexy time by the bosses. I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. The end. Thank you very much, Alan and Adam. Excellent summary there. So much going on in this film. Uh, quite a lot of locations as well. Last episode, we said The Spy Who Loved Me was kind of Roger Moore in his pomp as Bond. This one, very much the height of his romp. Moonraker, so many aspects to dig into. I get a sense that, uh, well, the, this one's kind of a copy of the previous film, which itself was kind of a copy of You Only Live Twice. So there's a sense that there's, they've got their formula they know what works, and they're going to stick to it no matter what. As a result, we kind of get a film that's very high on entertainment, but uh, arguably low on quality. I'm sure we'll have our discussions later. What did you make of it, Phil? What were your overriding feelings for Moonraker? Well, I have to be honest, I kind of went into Moonraker watching it again with a little bit of trepidation. I've always kind of in the past maintain that this is probably the weakest bomb film in terms of its plot and its direction so i kind of went into it at first looking with a sense of objectivity thinking you know I'll, I'll go back to it with an open mind and actually looking back upon it i was i was kind of pleasantly surprised in areas because it's it's not as bad as i, I first remembered it watching it maybe when i was younger it seems to have aged a little bit better than what i was first expecting it but i think where it falls down and its weaknesses, particularly with the ending. It's a very weak ending, in my opinion. So I think, I think there are problem areas with the film, and, it's, and, and in my opinion, it's certainly not Roger Moore's best efforts. Um, I think you have to kind of look at it that we've gone from The Spy Who Loved Me, which was kind of the sublime, to Moonraker, which really is the ridiculous. So it's, it's kind of, for me, it's still quite a weak effort in the Bond franchise, but on second or third view, and should I say, it's... It is a, it's not as bad as I first anticipated it would be. 
Yeah, I think you put it best, Martin, when you said this is peak romp. It is the most rompy, the most light entertainment uh, of all the Roger Moore movies. And actually, I quite liked that about it. I thought it was really entertaining. I did come into this um, film like Phil, not particularly liking it, but actually in context, coming after The Spy Who Loved Me, which had really perfected the Roger Moore formula, and with Albert R. Broccoli clearly wanting to go yet more bigger, yet more ambitious, yet more funny, you know, with even greater action sequences in it. I kind of appreciated it in the context of that. I do think there are things wrong with it. And, you know, it, it's certainly true that um, the story doesn't have anything like that dramatic and comic tension between Bond and Major Amasava, which is able to power you through the fact that the storyline is rather incidental. I mean, it's quite clear in this that they had their set pieces and were working the plot around it rather than they had an interesting character dynamic which drives the storyline. And of course, it's the classic problem I always have with when Bond goes a little bit too far into the realms of fantasy. I think you lose that connection to real world concerns and real espionage thrills. But I think the sheer level of ambition in this film, the scale of it, the spectacle of it, and just how entertaining and fun it is as a watch, I think really forgives it. And it is also worth pointing out very early on that The Spy Who Loved Me came out in 1977 in the summer, and so did Star Wars. And this is the reason why the producers don't make For Your Eyes Only next, as they had promised, they go on to Moonraker. It's an attempt to create a Bond film which doesn't look suddenly out of place in what was a burgeoning cinematic blockbuster trend for science fiction, not just Star Wars, but in this same year, Alien comes out. In the previous two years, we've had Superman and Star Trek movies. So that's the context in which this film exists. And although it was probably an error for them to go to sci-fi, I do appreciate the attempt. And I think the sheer scale and bravura of the film kind of means that it comes off, despite everything that's kind of wrong with it. Yeah, and of course, we do get some crossover with the five notes from Close Encounters of the Third Kind being the, uh, the password for the, uh, the door of the scientists. And indeed, in uh, the Drax hunting scene, when the bugle player calls off the hunt with uh, the first notes of Thus Spake Zarathustra, which of course opens 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, the in-jokes are peppered really throughout the whole film. So shall we, we've said that it's a very entertaining film, uh, so maybe rather than focusing on the characters as we've done in previous episodes, should we focus on the, uh, what did we find the most entertaining set piece? What, what do you reckon, Phil? Yeah, I think there's quite a few moments in, in the film that are quite entertaining. I mean, particularly the opening sequence where Bond is in the, um, the mid-air fight with Jaws for the, for the last remaining parachute. Interestingly, when they filmed that sequence, it was largely all just done as aerial photography using um, quite a heavy aerial camera. And the, the parachute they were fighting over was actually a dud. So the two stuntmen that you see falling through the air actually had parachutes already on their backs, but the suits are fitted around them. So that's why they look quite baggy and quite large by comparison. So it kind of follows on from the opening to uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, obviously that sense of you know, sequence that we're used to where it's, you know, lots of action, lots of over-the-top sort of dramatisation. And I think that follows throughout the film. Obviously, we see things like the um, chase through Brazil, obviously, where there's, there's a bit of slapstick, obviously, where the, uh, the ambulance man gets launched out of the back of the ambulance and, and lands in the, uh, the British Airways sign and things like that. And things like the fight sequences on the space station at the end as well. So I think, I think the action sequences are on a par with The Spy Who Loved Me. 
Returning to that opening action sequence, it does set up this film's credentials as saying to the audience, The Spy Who Loved Me was this big, epic Bond film, possibly the biggest you've seen so far. We're going even bigger. And where that opening sequence concluded with a spectacular jump stunt, our entire action sequence is going to be a jump stunt. It's all going to be in midair. And it calls, uh, it calls to mind a very important point about in-camera stunt work in both the Bond films and in cinema in general. It's not the most realistic stunt you've ever seen in that it's quite clear that obviously a stunt double or two, three stunt doubles are having to do it rather than Roger Moore and Richard Keel. But it doesn't ruin the sequence at all. You're able to suspend your disbelief because someone is actually performing this for real. It feels like such an incredible, amazing stunt to an extent that modern action films where a lot of this stuff would just be CGI'd just doesn't have the same urgency, even though you know it's not the real actors doing it. And it contrasts interestingly with the cable car sequence in Brazil, where actually there's a lot more of uh, Roger Moore and Richard Keel and Lois Charles, of course, against a blue screen on a model of a cable car. And you can sort of tell they're not really that high up, they're not really doing it, and henceforth, it becomes much more of a comedy sequence rather than a full-on action stunt sequence. And that's true of, I think, a lot of the set pieces in the film. They are either really great, spectacular action sequences with brilliant in-camera stunt work, or they are played largely for laughs and just for pure entertainment value. Yeah, I was going to say, one of my favourite, so I'd second your ideas about the opening sequence, very entertaining. I'd certainly like to know, maybe that's the lost Roger Moore story is his last leg of the trip of the, the Africa. Uh, what the hell was Jaws doing? Why was he on? How did he not know George was on the plane? Jaws, it turns out, isn't so big that he can't fit into an overhead luggage rack. <laughs> maybe that's where he was hiding the whole time. I can't see anywhere else he could have. Maybe he was underneath that sort of weird sofa bed that Bond's on. Yeah, I was going to say the, uh, the centrifuge scene is probably one of my favourites because we have Roger Moore has played Bond as very suave, very elegant in all of his scenes. Uh, whereas this one, I, I know that Moore was very self-deprecating of his, his own acting ability. But I think he does quite well in that uh, centrifuge scene, very discombobulated when he gets out, manages to eventually stop the machine with his, uh, his dart gun. But I thought that was a really tense and quite a claustrophobic scene. Bond is trapped tends to be a Bond trope, uh, but it was quite concentrated in that scene, I thought, and quite well executed. Yeah, it's a really great sequence. And you're right, Roger Moore's performance when he emerges from the machine is, is quite something. He's completely lost his cool and he's very, very shaken. Like he has no comedy quip or anything. I mean, he pushes Dr. Goodhead away from him and sort of leans against the wall. Like he's visibly shaken up by it. And, and it's a great little moment when he comes out of it. It's a great sequence as well in that I think it calls back to Thunderball and to the rack sequence at the health farm. It's suddenly Bond when he's probably at his most vulnerable. He's at the mercy of a machine that in that case he literally couldn't turn off. And in this case, obviously only by the brilliance of Q being a savant again. Uh, and of course, almost his life flashing before his eyes and then him remembering the watch, like his mind is blanking. And so he does very nearly meet his maker in that sequence. I, did. I enjoyed uh, Dr. Goodhead's reaction as well. It's interesting you linked it back to Thunderball, Adam. Her reaction is similar to the nurse in the spa. Like, how did this happen? I left you here. How did it go wrong? It is also brilliant that he very clearly sees Chang, uh, Drax's henchman, who's been operating the machine, walk away. And so you sort of feel, why have you even attempted to kill Bond at this point? You're basically just pointing your hand up and putting a big red buzzer on yourself saying, I'm up to no good. Look at me. Something dodgy's going on, Mr. Bond. You need to investigate us. 
Yeah, I feel that's like a wider plot hole, isn't it? Why doesn't Drex, if he wants to keep the government off his back and not be suspicious, why is he trying to kill Bond? It goes back to the classic Bond villain arrogance, doesn't it? They almost want to be found out at the last minute. They almost want people to have heard about in advance what it is they're going to do before they do it, because then they can feel so much more smug when it all goes well for them. Interestingly, Roger Moore looks much more nervous going into that centrifuge than he does much later on when he's going into actual space. He's sort of quite blasé and calm about that. I don't know whether at that point he knows that he has to, to go and foil Drax and stop him wiping out humanity. But he seems genuinely quite frightened of that centrifuge in a way that he isn't at an actual rocket. But then again, we know from um, You Only Live Twice, Bond has always wanted to go to space. I mean, Sean Connery's Bond very nearly sneaks onto that rocket. So maybe this is at this point just the full, the culmination of a lifelong dream. He finally gets to blast off. Okay, so, well, yeah, we've spoken about the uh, entertaining scenes of this film. Something that, uh, Phil, I believe you picked up on on the uh, the old VHS cover of Moonraker. There's an interesting blurb on the back, which I'll, uh, I'll read part of, get your reaction to. So, with a set which is truly out of this world and extraordinary stunts, Bond keeps up with the galactic trend begun by the Star Wars films. Producer Albert R. Broccoli claimed, however, that Moonraker was not science fiction, but science fact. Two consultants from NASA were hired for the duration of the filming to ensure the authenticity of all aspects of the film. What do you have a problem with that, Phil? What's, what's wrong with that? I mean, yeah, that, that's totally in uh, in reality. That's that's what would what we'd naturally expect with a space launch. You know, um, of course, a, a space shuttle would go up to the space station, and, and of course, Marines would then be able to fly out of an open canopy and uh, start their own mini battle in space. It, you know, that's, that's perfectly in the realms of reality. It's, it's just so ridiculous that it, they even contemplate the idea that this is based on any realm of fact. I think the, the most ridiculous element is the idea of this, the laser guns. You know, this, this suggestion that it's completely easy for Q to be in a remote area of Brazil and still to be able to develop one of the most advanced weapons of all time. Let's not forget we're in deep space as well. We're in a confined space that's got, you know, probably a limited oxygen supply, but everybody's willfully just firing lasers at each other with, with gay abandon. You know, there's no real risk of them suffering severe injury from the fact that they're blowing the spacecraft apart. Uh, it is certainly true that uh, Q in this film invents uh, a laser gun that can work in space, and yet this laser gun never reappears at all in the series. And you just think, how many times could you just pull out a laser gun on someone and it solves all of your problems? They're not going to mess with you anymore. I don't agree with you that the end of this film is, is cynical and, and not very good, Phil. I actually really like it. And the reason I like it is because, of course, Broccoli is talking out of his... Um, where the sun doesn't shine when he talks about this being science fact. It is obviously science fiction. It's obviously high fantasy. However, there is an attempt to ground all of that in some form of realism or within something that resembles actual tension, which offsets the fact that it's a little bit mental. Uh, and I think two people are key contributors to that. First is Ken Adams' production design. Uh, both Drax's sort of um, Houston in the Amazon with all its screens and then the space station itself. 
they're not fantasy buildings at all. They're not fantasy sets. Like they are at least resembling what, I guess you look at the ISS now and it doesn't look too dissimilar to the Moonraker space station. It is at least an attempt to go down the 2001 route and think about, well, if these things existed at this time, what might they actually look like? Um, and I think that um, Adam sets do ground it in some form of quasi-believability, as does jo uh, John Barry's music. John Barry returns to score again. And he's very deliberately doing a score in the space sequence, which is the opposite of what John Williams is doing in Star Wars. John Williams is, of course, doing these upbeat kind of fast um, brass and woodwind kind of themes. John Barry goes the other way. He's all about ominous strings and of re-emphasizing the grandeur and the danger of space. And the whole sequence is cut together in such a way that it brings out the tension of what they're doing. And I think that means that they just get away with the space fantasy of it. I was going to say, is I'm quite a fan of the sci-fi genre in general, but I, I'd say I was kind of disappointed with the space scenes uh, in the sense that they were not quite as good as the the other sci-fi films that I do watch. But on the other hand, I see your point, Adam. And if anything, I'd like to see a bit more of the space scenes because uh, it was billed as a as Bond in space. And yet only the final 15 minutes of the two-hour running time is actually in outer space. So I would have liked to have seen, rather than them having what they had like seven countries they filmed in, but so many different places that Bond goes to, rather unnecessarily. Uh, so I feel like have a bit more in space, make it big and make it epic rather than uh, some of the dull scenes that we get on land. It is very true. I don't understand how James Bond isn't jet lagged to hell in this film. You look at the air miles, he racks up, he starts off in California, then he flies back to Venice, then he goes back to Rio de Janeiro, into the Amazon and then to space. And he drags M&Q with him for most of it as well. And, and they're two oldish guys. I mean, they must be absolutely shattered after all of it. But it is a good point about what we've sort of mentioned before, which is that clearly the plot is a little absent in this and they had sequences that they had to string together rather than a concrete story. Look at the Rio de Janeiro sequence. You could lose that whole thing and it would not affect the story one iota. It's only there really to justify the cable car sequence, which is one of the weaker action set pieces in the film. So yeah, it is definitely a weakness of this film that, uh, that yeah, that happens. I still maintain Drax. In terms of portrayal by Michael Lonsdale, I still maintain he's one of the best villains in the Bond franchise, but he's kind of hamstrung by a weak film in certain aspects. And it, it, the ending kind of reflects that because he kind of, he almost runs away because Bond is literally defeating him, but he's still got the Orchid rockets have already gone out. So he's still, part of his plan is still going to succeed even if the space station is compromised. And yet he's sort of running away from Bond and then he's, he's got his last chance to kill him. And obviously Bond uses the dark gun again to, to kill Drax. It's kind of, do you not think it's kind of a weak way to end what is actually quite a good villain character? Do you think it was perhaps they were just sort of clutching at straws by that point? Or do you think it was a, a good way for that scene to end in that sense? I'm not sure. I think if they're in space, I think that seems to be the obvious way to get rid of the villain is put him in an airlock and send him out into space. But yeah, I'd agree with you, Phil. I think this character reminds me a bit of Scaramanga in The Man with the Golden Gun, where the, the film and the plot itself is not so strong. But we do have a really interesting villain character because he's kind of similar to Scaramanga, kind of cosmopolitan, sophisticated man. So sophisticated, actually, that he can play the piano without touching the keys. Oh, yeah, I always notice that. 
but yeah, I agree. I'd never quite appreciated before just how good Michael Lonsdale is in this film. Um, he's absolutely fantastic, and he's fantastic in a way that's very different to how anyone has really played a Bond villain before. Like with Stromberg, we're in the Blofeld mold, uh, but more genocidal. You know, he specifically says, I'm out to create a master race. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a hint of sort of Nazist eugenics going on there as well to give it real world um, sort of sinister evil. And yet he plays the role incredibly laconically and with this kind of amused, calm wit which I just found so entertaining. Like, he underplays, whereas everyone else has done the girt for over Goldfinger thing of kind of being bombastic and overplaying it a bit. And he's helped by some real zingers in the, the, the script from Christopher Wood. I mean, I tried to get some of his lines into, um, into Alan's introduction, but when you listen to them back, they're like, that's a fantastic bar. The fact that he says to Bond, you, you thwart my attempts to plan an amusing death for you. It's almost him acknowledging that classic Bond villain thing in that when it comes to Bond, they're not trying to be efficient with him. They're just trying to be amusing and funny with, uh, with how they see the back of him. He sort of is drawing attention to, to the ridiculousness of the villains. Uh, but by playing it in a very different way, I think he, he becomes very amusing whilst maintaining the elements of the character which are genuinely quite menacing. And he does get the help of his HR department. We even get the scene of him on the phone to that department saying, well, if we can get him. I just love the fact that, well, obviously there wouldn't be a LinkedIn page for henchmen, but I just love the fact that they're actively looking and, and Jaws is obviously the top of the list. Let's get him. Who's he calling at that point? Henchmen are us. Yeah, I just love there's like a dedicated recruitment company out of there that's like, almost like Hayes or Reed that are just literally just looking for henchmen purposefully. It's almost like they've been on The Apprentice and they're just like, yeah, my business idea is to create a recruitment agency for henchmen only. But no, I'd agree. I think that Michael Lonsdale and to an extent also the, um, the henchmen with it are, are very much menacing in this film. Obviously, we haven't really mentioned Chang, his kind of, his assistant. But I think one of the most... Quite upsetting scenes, really, is obviously where um, Bond is assisted. I forget the character's name, but he's assisted by Drax's kind of love interest. And obviously she is then killed quite violently by obviously the pack of dogs that chase her through the woods. But you don't really expect it to be in that sense. You expect that she'll probably get shot or, you know, that Drax will have probably use the nerve gas or something like that. You don't really see that coming from it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That's, I think, one of my favourite scenes in the whole film because it is so dramatic and so upsetting. And for a number of reasons, first of all, the way it's shot, the, the atmospheric lighting, you know, those shafts of early morning light through the trees and, and the fact that it's in this dense forest setting on this seemingly tranquil, idyllic French estate that uh, Drax has rebuilt in California. The whole thing contrasts so awfully with, with the horrible violence that, that she's subjected to. Um, and I think what also makes it quite powerful is the fact that, you know, we, we've seen women in these films be consumed by animals, but it's always slightly outlandish sea creatures. It's piranhas or it's sharks. Dogs are more everyday. They're more of a mundane animal. And yet they can be a vicious, dangerous animal. And it's, it's a moment that really highlights that. And it brings it home a little bit more the grisly nature of what's happening to Corin in that scene because it's an animal we just have a greater understanding of. You called for me, Mr. Drax? You were with Bond last night in my study. No, I... You showed him the safe. I didn't. I'm terminating your employment. You will leave immediately.
uh, maybe a couple of action sequences that I thought didn't work quite as well. We had unnecessarily two boat chasers. We had the uh, the one with Jaws, I thought was okay. We had some nice explosions, some boats jumping across, and uh, some more slapstick of uh, the Jaws character at the end. But the one that I really disliked was the, uh, the gondola, or the, the bondola, as it was nicknamed, that one was just ridiculous, wasn't it? The, uh, the double-taking pigeon. We had the return of the drunk guy. It was just dreadful. It was one of my least favorite Bond action sequences, I think. Uh, what did you guys make of it? Yeah, I think this is kind of peak sort of, um, again, ridiculousness in terms of the setup for it. Interestingly, they kind of filmed those chase sequences through Venice with relatively few takes. The, the part that was kind of the most tricky for them was actually creating the hovercraft at the very end of the sequence because it took them five takes to get just that one sequence right where obviously Roger Moore lifts the boat out of the water and onto the onto the plaza. And also, if you had a, a gondola that could do that, that could then turn into a hovercraft, you know, could also have a propeller that could obviously power it through the, the streets of Venice, MI6 are going to be inundated with complaints of why was one of your top secret vehicles being used in, in the middle of Venice. But there's no further mention of it. It's just, oh, yeah, no, it's perfectly reasonable that a gondola can then turn into a hovercraft. Well, Roger Moore, it's interesting to note, does have an awful lot of boat chases, certainly in these first four. I mean, there's at least one aquatic action sequence in every single one of them. Uh, and you're right, the Venice uh, gondola chase does weirdly function as a kind of greatest hits moment of the ones he's done so far. It's very much in the comedy pursuit mode of uh, the first two Roger Moore films, right up to the fact that he saws a gondola in half by driving through it, the same way he does with um, the, uh, the boat in Thailand uh, when he's being pursued by uh, the dojo uh, martial artists. But the second one, I think, is, is genuinely a great boat chase because it's not recalling early Roger Moore. It's recalling the boat chase at the end of From Russia With Love. Indeed, John Barry brings back the great 007 theme, our theme tune, uh, to underscore it. Uh, and it. And it works, therefore, as a genuinely much more exciting, more seriously played action sequence, albeit complemented by two of Jaws's most ridiculous but still really funny bits of face acting. First, when Bond does get the live and let die paraglider to help him over the waterfall and Jaws pulls an expression that says, where on earth does he get all of this stuff from? And then the other look of absolute dumbstruck surprise just before he himself goes over. With the Venice chase, do you think that they missed an opportunity to have uh, J.W. Pepper and his wife just be sat at St. Mark's Square as they were before? Is that English secret agent from England again? Yeah, I was going to mention that, actually, that uh, that was probably the only thing that was missing from that <laughs> compilation of Roger Moore's greatest hits was JW. The only other way they could have put him in was in the second boat chase, if it had been on like a little river cruise or something daft like that in the middle of the Amazon, just, you know, going past them, just these two boats rocket past them. That would be the only way. Interestingly, going back to Jaws, um, we've mentioned that obviously he becomes the good guy towards the end. Apparently this was because a lot of the fan mail that was coming in from children was coming into Lewis Gilbert and the producers saying, why don't you make Jaws a good guy? Because, you know, he had become quite likeable by this point. And obviously a lot of people wanted him to be more uh, more warmth to the character. So obviously that kind of probably influenced their decision to make him a, a good guy in the end. And obviously we see that Jaws is now very much in love with his, with his new girlfriend, which is quite an unusual step for a henchman to have that. Well, I wanted to ask you guys, what do we think the, the moral dimension of Jaws? Does helping Bond and saving millions of people on Earth from the nerve gas, does that make up for his brutal 
hideous murders from the previous film. Yeah, he's literally helped save humanity, guys. Uh, no, it doesn't. It is interesting that they took that route with Jaws, uh, and especially after we sort of talked last week about how genuinely frightening the character is, even though they have their cake and eat it and always have a little bit of a slapstick payoff. Uh, in The Spy Who Loved Me. Interesting that children still really liked the character. Yeah, maybe kids were just really tough back then. But yeah, they do play him much more as a kind of figure of fun in this, which I think is fine. And certainly Richard Keel is very up to that. I mean, his slapstick performance in this is, is absolutely fantastic. The scene when he's in the big costume and he's creeping down the alleyway brings back a sense of that genuine unsettling menace that the character had but of course that whole sequence ends with him kind of giving up trying to get bond and sort of starting dancing as he's led away by all the sambering uh, brazilians <laughs> maybe also the girlfriend thing is he spent the entire last film and a half watching bond cop off with all these amazing looking women and suddenly for the first time ever he's like no i'm, I'm gonna put my personal life before my professional life i've committed myself to being the world's great assassin and i am now I can chill. I can start thinking about me and about starting a little family of Jaws's. There's a dating agency for henchmen. Just that so you know, we've had, we've had kind of dating agencies for professional people. Do you think there is just a soul, you know, henchman in love or something like that? Is just just defined for them. What, are you in? Are you in the market, Phil, as a henchman? No, I might. I might pitch this on Dragon's Den. I might just create my own henchman dating agency. I feel a bit sorry for his little bold henchman, who uh, the henchman of the henchman, who he brings to operate the cable car for him. Is this just Jaws's thing? He always needs a little bold mate to go with him everywhere. Who is that guy? What happens to him? I'm surprised he doesn't shout pyramids as he's dying and Bond then goes to Egypt on the next country. Moving on to Dr. Holly Goodhead, if I may. She's a really interesting character and a very good Bond woman in this film. And what did we think of her? I, I think that, like with Anya Amasova, they've, they've done a really great job creating a three-dimensional character for her. Quite an improvement, actually, I feel, from The Spy Who Loved Me. This character of Dr. Holly Goodhead is uh, an agent in her own right. And we get that on the, the space scene we said maybe could do with some improvement. But I think that's one of the plus points of that scene is her taking physically, taking the people out in the radar room. So I think you get a sense that she is Bond's equal in many ways throughout the film. And even when sort of Bond introduces himself, there's quite a great subversion of the, the audience's expectations because everybody's automatically assuming that Dr. Goodhead will be a man. It's just a great little interplay between Bond and Goodhead as an introduction. And obviously that kind of continues further down the line. Another great sequence, that, again, I'll mention this a little bit in the gadget section, is obviously when Bond meets her in the hotel room in Venice. And it's quite interesting to see that the CIA have their own kind of Q branch, their own sort of group of engineers and scientists who are developing these fantastic gadgets. And obviously Bond is then kind of in awe because she's got a similar repertoire of, of weaponry that she can use to protect herself. I forgot about the great inflection of Moore going, Oh, woman. It is interesting, that moment, because of course Bond is to an extent playing up himself as a kind of foppish buffoon to kind of put everyone on the back foot. 
But Dr. Goodhead has the better of that exchange because all of her paths to him afterwards are absolutely caustic and sardonic. Like she's just kind of taking the mick out of him to quite a savage extent. So like with uh, Major Amasova in, um, in their exchanges in The Spy Who Loved Me, she does actually emerge from all of those with the upper hand. It's also the fact that she is using Bond for sex in that hotel room scene in Venice as much as he would like to have sex with her. As soon as he's done and sneaks out, she's quite pleased and quite happy because she can get on the phone and ring up her taxi and get on with her mission and go straight to the airport. Indeed, Bond has that line later on, I almost tripped over your luggage on the way out. Well, he's almost a bit hurt by it, the fact that he's been used for a change. But all of this builds into a character who is very intelligent and very capable, and again, builds on the good work that they did from The Spy Who Loved Me. Okay, so uh, we'll go over now to Phil with the cars and gadgets for Moonraker. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Neither have I, actually. Yes, thank you very much, Martin. Uh, interestingly, this is one of the few films where cars are kind of in the background, really. They're not really focused on as a centrepiece for any chase or any real gadgets. So not really anything to mention about cars this week. Obviously, we get quite an eclectic mix with the different locations that we go to. This time, it's very much more about the gadgets in this film. For the first time, really, we're much more focused on the devices that Bond and obviously the henchmen use in order to either escape from sort of de deadly situations or to, you know, to progress the plots. One really quite interesting point I wanted to mention was the fact that um, Bond has his own monikered camera. Um, obviously, we see this when he's trying to take photographs of the blueprints in Drax's lair. It's quite interesting that Q Branch considering that obviously it still recognises the Secret Service, would issue Bond with his very own 007 camera to be able to take photographs. Also, we've already mentioned the, um, the gondola that becomes the hovercraft. It, this wasn't really based on any type of vehicle that was being manufactured. It was all very much fanciful Q branch designs. Um, just to run through a lot of the, um, the gadgets that he used quite quickly, so... The very first one we kind of see is the wrist dart gun. This was based on the Seiko digital watches at the time. The main real gadgets that we see, though, are, of course, the laser guns. Again, completely based in fantasy. There's no real evidence that these could have ever worked in reality, particularly because of the fact of, A, they'd probably be too unreliable, and, B, they'd probably be quite dangerous to actually operate. Interestingly enough, this is also one of the few films where Roger Moore doesn't use um, either the Walther PPK or the Walther P9 firearm. It's more kind of fight sequences that are used to, to defeat enemies and things like that. So not really is a huge focus on vehicles per se in this film, much more gadget-orientated. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. Uh, so we'll move on now to the book. So by the book, 007. Uh, what did we have for this one, Adam? Why don't you acquaint yourself the manual? Should be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you, Martin. So, as we've mentioned, Moonraker, a very early uh, James Bond novel. It's only the third in the series after Casino Royale and Live and Let Die. 
interestingly, it's the only Bond novel which is set entirely in the UK, so very much a major contrast to, to the film in which we're sort of flying around all over the place and uh, across continents and, of course, into outer space. There's no Bond in outer space in the novel, written in uh, the 1950s, the mid-50s. Obviously, a lot had to be updated from it. It did, though, begin as a screenplay, uh, much like Dr. No and Thunderball did, uh, which Fleming, once the screenplay was not successfully turned into a film, decided to adapt as his next book. Now, it begins with a long section involving M and Sir Hugo Drax, as he is adopted British in the book, uh, playing bridge at uh, the Blades Club. Bridge the card game, of course, because M suspects that Drax is cheating and so has Bond to come along to him and help him try and discover whether Drax is or not. Uh, we get a little reference to this in uh, the film where uh, the defence secretary, uh, Sir Geoffrey Keane, um, says that he's in the bridge club with Drax uh, and, and is hence very um, reluctant to infiltrate his Venice laboratory. So in the novel, once they do realise that Drax is cheating, uh, Bond is sent undercover to take over as Drax's head of security at his Moonraker operations. And in the novel, the Moonrakers are not space shuttles. They're in fact nuclear missiles. They can be targeted nuclear missiles. So Bond goes undercover at the Moonraker base, which is actually at my neck of the woods in the novel. It's uh, in the south coast of England, alongside Gala Brand, who is undercover with the Metropolitan Police. And after a series of investigations, they work out that Drax, in fact, was once a Nazi, now working for Smirsch, the Russian intelligence service. And the film preserves this a little bit in the plot of Drax wanting to create a master race. What does surprise once uh, Bond and Brand are discovered is the sequence where they're imprisoned beneath the fuselage of the rocket. And like in the film, uh, it's up to Bond to have them escape. And actually, the film, uh, the book rather, concludes itself with the conclusion we saw in The Spy Who Loved Me, with Bond and Brand reprogramming the Moonraker rocket to blow up not London, which it is targeted at, but actually Hugo Drax's uh, escaping submarine, which he was using to flee the country. A couple of interesting side points on this. The rights to this were sold separately to the rest of the series, as was Casino Royale. And so it is another uh, Bond book which exists in another form of adaptation, very specifically a South African radio play starring none other than Bob Holness, the future host of Blockbusters, as James Bond. This is the Bond story that Bob Holness uh, played the character in. Also, interestingly, the Blades Club, uh, the club where M and Drax play bridge in the early sequences in the novel, does make an appearance in a later James Bond film. It appears in Die Another Day, quite literally as a Blades Club, where uh, Bond and Gustav Graves face off in that uh, rather maligned fencing sequence. And worth saying, this is the last of the novel's Bar Casino Royale to be adapted. So from now on, we're going to be venturing into the short stories that Fleming wrote. Okay, very nice. So it would, uh, I mean, Bob Holness, would he have saved that Bondola scene? <laughs> He'd have certainly had fun with uh, all the characters named after letters of the alphabet. I'll have a P, please, Q. Or is that M? I'll have a I'll, Q. I'll have an M. I'll have a I'll have a Z. Okay, and uh, quickly over to my segment, which is that's not okay anymore. So for this one, not too much to take a look at in terms of uh, non-PC areas. Our usual areas, the, the two isms, sexism and racism. Of course, we, we get some of the, uh, the casual sexism from Bond when he utters the a woman line. But as we mentioned, Dr. Goodhead kind of gets the better of him throughout many of the scenes. So that negates his rather sexist line. 
not much racism, similar to Dr. No, Hugo Drax is an equal opportunities employer, lots of different nationalities represented, Japanese henchmen, French helicopter pilot, all of his perfect human specimens come from a variety of different areas. Um, and uh, maybe one other area, a disaster that was averted, I feel, was the scene that we get the reappearance of General Gogol. He's on the telephone being told about Drex's plan, uh, and he's in bed with a beautiful woman. Originally, that was going to be Anya from the previous film. Uh, and I think that would not have worked uh, at all, really, would it? it could have undone the great work that they had for her character previously. But uh, those are the only things that I could think of. Uh, I don't know if uh, Adam and Phil, you have any other errors that you thought were dodgy? Yeah, no, no, I think it's actually pretty good. And it, yeah, it is interesting to point out that uh, Pan's people, Logan's run, Drax's master race is is very diverse. And actually, you know, he's he's not a, a Nazi-style eugenicist like the novel. He he, you know, he wants to repopulate the world you know, in its full, colourful glory. Good on him. Jamie's got to wipe out millions to do it, but you know. That's why I said you had more moderate views, Adam, at the beginning of the show. <laughs> okay, so before we get to the quiz this week, uh, of course, we'll move to Q branch, i.e. questions branch. Um, so what questions did we have for this week's episode, Phil? Um, yes, yeah, so a couple have come in. Um, one quite interesting one from Alex K on Twitter. There have been um, recent suggestions of a new Bond musical being made what do we think? Would a Bond musical work or do we think it's kind of maybe a bad idea just for, for audiences and would it alienate people? Um, yeah, interestingly, apparently it's uh, the daughter of Harry Saltzman, one of the two original producers of the Bond films who's behind this. Um, Rumours of it premiering when ready, either in New York or Las Vegas of all places. Uh, obviously, I'm not going if it's in Las Vegas, of course. Go back to our Diamonds Are Forever podcast to hear why. I'd, I'd sort of be interested to know what they're trying to do with it in terms of the music. Is it a jukebox musical featuring all the James Bond themes? Or is it going to be an original musical where they're writing new songs based on James Bond? You know, are we going to get like, you know, I don't know, 007 Ways to Leave Your Lover or things like that? I mean, if there, if there was a musical, of course, Brosnan has to appear it in some capacity. Now that could be interesting. If it is going to be a jukebox musical and scene by scene, we're going to recreate some of the great scenes from the movies. Maybe Brosnan is sort of your framing device. He appears as an older James Bond, as David Niven does in the Casino Royale spoof to sort of anchor everything together. And then all the songs are flashbacks. What would be a particularly good Bond song for, uh, for Brosnan to sort of have a go at? Maybe his own. Goldeneye, I found his weakness. Goldeneye, Bring him to his knees. It'll take forever to see what I've got. That's more like Bono. Thank you. In a previous life, we've seen we've seen you in a musical, Phil. Would you be interested in starring in the Bond musical? I I strongly doubt I could produce a performance on the caliber of Pierce Brosnan. Yes, I I'm ashamed to say I do have a musical history past of appearing in amateur productions of uh, one that will remain nameless. But yes, I, I fear that uh, I wouldn't really add anything to a Bond musical, I'm afraid. How do you do certain sequences from the Bond films on stage, though? Could you do, like, the skydive from the beginning of Moonraker on stage, like, just get a huge wind machine, like they, they have at those sort of trampoline places, and just put it in the middle? and then just have two people sort of dive on top of it and have a little scuffle. 
while uh, Pierce Brosnan singing uh, Shirley Bassey's Moonraker theme. No, you see, I'd want the centrifuge. I'd want just some random musical actor just to be sat in the machine. I've got it, I've got it. You have that, and then you have uh, the, the song is, uh, uh, you spin me right round, baby, right round. So like Holly Goodhead, whoever you've got playing Holly Goodhead is just singing uh, Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive. And of course, recreating Diamonds Are Forever in the incinerator, Burn Baby Burn, the obvious choice. You dirty double-crossing like me think those goddamn diamonds are phonies. Shady Tree could be the warm-up act for uh, the musical. Maybe, maybe before the musical starts, we get a Shady Tree star character. I think we could be on to something here. I think this is how we make our millions now. We'll, we'll just make our own Bond musical. I think this is, this is how we get onto uh, Megafade. The, the producers of the musical, if you're listening to it, you can have these ideas. We just want to see it happen. We don't want paying. Well, Phil wants paying. But, you know, beyond that. Okay, so I think we've uh, exhausted the options there for the Bond musical. Another great question that came in on Twitter um, for Adam and Martin would be, um, if you wanted to design your own Bond film, so any Bond actor from the previous films, obviously your own QM, Money Penny, and sort of plot and gadgets, what kind of ideas would you come up with? What would you want to see as your kind of, your own dream Bond film, if that were? So it could be any plot that you came up with, but obviously using the actors of your choice. What would you do for that? I think you got two options. I always go back to when we were talking about You Only Live Twice and uh, thinking about whether Blofeld, in fact, had Godzilla in uh, the volcano lair in a little uh, sub-compartment that he was going to release on all the ninjas as a last resort. So maybe James Bond 26 could be a Bond versus Godzilla, you know, in, in the style of all those great Godzilla films. It's, it's Bond now has to defeat his ultimate opponent, Godzilla. Or, I thought this the other night, what you could do is you could go really radical with it. And you could have actually Louis Theroux meets James Bond, where Louis Theroux has to be a Bond sidekick on a mission. And he's sort of there awkwardly commenting on all the things that are going on. James Bond took home his third lover in as many days. I thought whether I should question him about his sexual appetites and whether they had a relation to his traumatic childhood. But I didn't bring it up in this moment. He was too busy making silly quips and puns. I decided to remain silent. That's a fairly perfect answer. I don't think I can... I can't top that. Well, maybe I'd... Uh, I remember last week you said that the novel was based on the perspective of a, of a female character, wasn't it? So I think that would be a really interesting film if we got it from the perspective of another character, whether it be Louis Theroux or, uh, or someone else. Yeah, The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, the novel entirely written from the first-person perspective of Vivian Michelle, whose name we haven't used yet. So, yeah, maybe that could be quite interesting. Yeah, Bond only appears halfway through and uh, saves the day and is seen from a different perspective. Yeah, I like that idea. Okay, so uh, shall we move on to the, the quiz, uh, our final segment? So it's, uh, I've got the honours for this week. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Um, so this week it's a standard quiz, three questions each. Uh, you won't get any options for these ones, um, but they're all numbers that we've heard in the film. Uh, maybe I've made them too easy. But which set do we want, uh, set A or set B, uh, Adam? Oh, set A, of course, A for Adam. Okay, so uh, you'll start with set A, Adam. So uh, question number one. So uh, we get several Moonraker shuttles make their way to Drex's space station, but which one is Drex's shuttle? that he makes his way to the base on. I think that's Moonraker 5, which has a laser. 
It is indeed Moonraker 5. Well done, Adam. So over to you, Phil. Question number one. How many globes of death does Drax intend to launch around the world? It's quite a few. Is it not 50? It is 50. Well done. So one apiece. Maybe I have made these questions too easy. Uh, so over to you, Adam. Question number two. Bond meets his Brazilian contact, Manuela. How many hours does he enjoy in the presidential suite with her? How many hours does he kill? Because he doesn't samba. I'm going to say five again, but I'm not 100%. It is indeed five. Well done, Adam. Two, one. So back to you, Phil. Question number two. How many times does Bond shoot a gun in this film? If he doesn't really use the wall for PPK at all while he's on, on Earth. So it's really kind of a laser gun. Well, I suppose the dark gun. So twice, technically three times. Because Right, I'm going to... See, this is kind of a trick question because he uses the dark gun on multiple occasions. Let's go 10 times. Well, you correctly identified, Phil. He doesn't have his usual Walther throughout the whole film. He also, interestingly, doesn't have a laser gun in the whole final battle. So you, I could have accepted one as an answer where he shoots down the guy in the tree when the, in the pheasant hunting scene, uh, or I'd have accepted four if you include that gunshot and the three dart gunshots that he uses, one into M's painting, uh, one into the centrifuge, and one killing Drex at the end. So unfortunately, Phil, you went 10 quite high there. Do you think this was a deliberate choice on the producer's part because Roger Moore pretty much always blinks every time he fires a gun in any of these films? <laughs> and really obviously as well. Okay, Adam, you're still 2-1 up. Uh, so this one is actually for the win. Question number three. Bond is equipped with the darts. He has five red-tipped cyanide darts, according to Q. And uh, how many seconds does it take for them to kill? Off the top of my head, I think it's 30 seconds. Well done, Adam. You've got the win. Finally, you've beaten the curse of Phil. Finally, at last, I win one. I beat Phil again. So uh, congratulations, Adam. Uh, what song would you like to play us out? So I think uh, in honour of this is, we haven't mentioned the third and final Bond theme, uh, which is sung by Dame Shirley Bassey. And we haven't had any Shirley Bassey so far. We're not obviously going to have her Moonraker theme because it's terrible. Uh, but I think in honour of uh, Shirley Bassey's work on the series and in honour of the much heightened budget that this film is enjoying, shall we go for Dame Shirley Bassey with Hey Big Spender? Very nice. Yeah, I think we've been slightly unfair to Shirley, to Dame Shirley, in our previous episodes. So it's good to have her finally playing us out. So uh, that's about it for this episode. Thank you very much for joining us. Of course, remember, you can uh, keep up to date with our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So that's a goodbye from me, Martin. It's goodbye from me, Adam. And it's goodbye from me, Phil. The minute you walked in the joint... I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. Good looking, so refined. Say, wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? So let me get right to the point. I don't pop my cork for every man I see. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you a man of the... Don't put this in.
you just wait for me to just go <laughs> yeah. naturally, and then you're like, yeah, that's in, that's in. 